Sanea. Yes. <laughs> Are you one of the cool kids yet? Have you got like one of these blue sky invite codes or would you like one? I got a DM about a Blue Sky invitation, and I've got to be honest, when I first got it, I didn't know what it was, and I had to do a little bit of research on it, and I, I haven't moved or responded to that DM yet. <laughs> what about you? Oh, yeah, martin.social. That's me. I'm there. Of course. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> This is the Remi Podcast, the show dedicated to the topics, trends, stories and culture in and around the developer community on GitHub. I'm Martin Woodward from the GitHub Developer Relations team. And I'm Neha Batra from GitHub's core productivity team. Hey, so Neha, I want to get a bit like existential today, maybe. Like, why are we here? Why, why, why do we create? Why are we <laughs> innovating? Where are we going with this? <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot lately just how exciting everything is you know i like i can't believe i get paid to do this job i just love working in this space there's always something to learn something to get excited about one of the things i've been really getting excited about is like the sort of change we're seeing within social media and seeing kind of the rise of some of these more open social platforms like mastodon which is you know a fully open source project and it's just reminding me of kind of like the early days of open source when things were getting created. I don't know. It's just an exciting time. I know what you mean now. Okay. Um, I've actually been interested in it too. I think like especially what I'm curious about is I've been seeing things start to shape up, right, with Macedon and Blue Sky. And I'm wondering, as we've learned the lessons in open source on how to make things more federated and grow and scale those systems, if we'll be applying the same lessons and if we'll have the same markers of evolution, I'm curious to see what old is new and what new is new. You know what I mean? Yeah, and just like how... Sometimes the lack of control and centralization, you know, the distributed nature of things actually leads to greater creativity. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool about open source is just how much the space changes all the time because you've got access to all these really creative minds all around the world and nobody's telling you how to do something kind of you can just go try things and see what works and it's kind of the same for open source itself you know how we define open source what we use it for kind of the parameters that are acceptable in the community all that's just constantly evolving yeah, and actually for today's show, we're going to be doing a little ode to the industry and diving into the evolution of the culture in and around open source. And there are some that I would like to call spicy topics, if I do say so myself. Oh. We're going to be talking about things like why open source developers shouldn't be quite so afraid of analytics and tracking, what it means to have an open source project that's closed to contributions, and why the missing ingredient in your open source project might be humor. So that's all going to be coming up. But first, first commit. On your mark, get set. We're riding on the internet. Cyberspace set free. Hello Today, a little story about how open source can save the day. I don't know about you, Martin, but the idea of saving the rainforest and the ongoing threat to the globe of losing all of the trees and biodiversity was something that I learned about in elementary school. And we're still hearing about it. It's one of the biggest environmental issues out there. Yeah, I mean, like it was always save the rainforest, wasn't it? 
Yeah, the Amazon is probably the poster child of rainforests. We hear the most about it. But this issue is happening in lots of other places. If you take, for example, the Maya forest, it's the second biggest continuous rainforest in South America. And in this case, you know, second place isn't the first loser. It's still really important. Yeah, actually, since the year 2000 alone, the forest has shrunk by 15%, which is a pretty huge amount in a short amount of time. Mm. And that loss has real impacts. Less forest in the fight against global warming as we lose trees, loss in biodiversity, and even the loss of plants that could go on to be the basis of life-saving medicines. Part of the trick of trying to protect all this land is that it's so remote and it's just so hard to monitor. The Maya forest alone takes up to 35 million hectares, and that's a whole lot of trees to keep track of. So, Neha, what do we know that's really good at handling large amounts of data? The answer has to be open source, Martin. Open source. Ding, ding. Correct answer. So enter Global Forest Watch, an open source platform managed by the World Resource Institute that uses data from satellites and elsewhere to monitor forests around the world and share that data with governments and non-governmental organizations, you know, NGOs. And that allows journalists, nonprofit workers, and even police enforcement to know when areas are degrading or losing trees and take action. They even have a public-facing map that you can check out. And this is just one way that open source is being used to tackle major global environmental issues. There are also projects monitoring things like radiation information near power plants or tracking volcanic ash in the wake of eruptions to see how people and animals might be affected regionally. Open source data is really empowering people to get the kind of essential information they need to understand how we live and work. Which means, I guess, that tracking data isn't always a bad thing. Oh, I see what we did there, Neha. That's actually a preview to a discussion we're having later on in this show. So bonus points on that. Yeah, I'll take it. So, Martin, I think one of the things that I really love about open source is that initially when it meets the eye, people are often talking about how it's open and how it's free. But what is really interesting to me is how it's actually helped form these entire societies and organizations of people who are all collaborating together. And I think there's just so much more than meets the eye when it comes to managing successful open source projects. It's really cool to see how these things manifest. Yeah, I was kind of drawn to it from the philosophy and principles of working in the open and things. But then also selfishly, when I'm doing my own stuff, sometimes I'm just throwing it out there in the open because, hey, if I do it in the open, somebody might get use of it. But I'm not really trying to start the next big project or anything. I'm just just throwing it out there just in case kind of thing. But I also think it's a bit dangerous when people get a bit too rigid about how they define open. That's always kind of like a red flag to me. Uh, There's never only one way to do something. And yet you get these people who kind of sometimes would criticize you if you don't do it fully open from the get go. And, and, you know, it's quite confusing. So today we're going to look a bit at the story of the Lightstream project. And it was started by a guy named Ben Johnson. And it's open source, but... It's an open source project in that all the source is open. Anyone can use it. It's free to use. Uh, It's all Apache 2 licensed. So you're free to kind of take it and 
mix it up and use it for your own stuff. We have people add encryption and do all kinds of stuff that are outside the main line of the project. And in that sense, it's open. But at the same time, we also have some restrictions around what kind of contributions we accept. So we do accept small things, but typically, if you want any kind of larger feature, uh, just open an issue. We'll discuss it. So restrictions around contributions, not the biggest deal, though. Yeah, no, maybe not. But when the project was also entirely closed to code contributions of any kind whatsoever. Doesn't that kind of go against basically the main tenant of open source, right? The fact that it's open? Yeah, you know, we talk about this quite a bit internally because, you know, we always have pull requests switched on and we kind of leave them on and, you know, unless the project's archived. And so we've kind of stumbled into this philosophical conversation and it's one that I think is really worth having. Can you be open source but not open to contributions? So we're going to dig into this with the Remy Project's very own Mike Melanson. Hey, Mike. Hey. I'm really intrigued by this concept, and we're going to talk about this in a broader sense and what it means for the community in a second. But first, can you tell us why someone would make the decision for closed contributions? Like, when it comes to a project like Lightstream, why would a developer close it to contributions when it's supposed to be open source? Sure. So you guys have talked about it, but, you know, there's a lot of assumptions when it comes to open source. We have sort of our ways of thinking about what open means. The big one is obviously around code contributions. A lot of times, because that's sort of a metric that we use, it's it's something we really focus on. And if you talk to Ben, you know, there's lots of different types of contributions that go beyond code. I, I've spoken to a lot of maintainers, both for this story and for a recent Q&A we worked on. And for many of them, code is actually often the thing they want last. They, they would like documentations. They would like testing. They would like mm. all sorts of other things. They often say that code is the easiest part. So seeing him close it off to code, I mean, after talking to him and others, wasn't surprising. But it's just it goes against that sort of basic assumption that people have about what it means to be open source and what it means to contribute to open source. And when you get a code contribution, the thing about it is, is that it comes with downstream maintenance burdens, right? Like it comes with all this other stuff. The person who's making that contribution, they may not have the full scope of the project in mind. They may not have the roadmap in mind, all sorts of things. These are all sort of the considerations that everybody has to have when it comes to contributions. And for Ben, you know, he weighed them and came out on the end of not accepting. There's a lot of things where you can, if someone can add a, a change in there, it might have a lot of adverse effects around performance. So we really have to be careful about every little change that goes in there. And they take a lot of testing uh, just to make sure it doesn't break on a lot of people's systems. You know, the amount of testing that goes into every change is so much larger than the actual change itself. So there's all this additional work that people are you know, asking of us on the maintainer side. Part of it comes down to philosophy of what you think tools should really be. You know, a lot of people really just appreciate having a database that works, you know, pretty fast and it just works. So um, I think a lot of that is limiting how many features we add. I've talked with a bunch of maintainers, you know, and they'll often not actually accept code contributions without associated unit tests because, this is a feature they don't ever use themselves, so they need tests to make sure they don't accidentally break it in the future. Why do you think this was controversial if this was or wasn't open source? What would people actually take issue with? I think it again comes down to the idea that there's assumptions around what open source means and what it entails. I actually spoke to Julia Ferrioli, and she has this idea of the social model of open source versus the technical model. And the technical model is like, 
it's talking about the open source initiatives definition of open source, which, you know, it's been around since the late 90s. It hasn't even actually changed since 2007. And, you know, the first three points are sort of the really most pertinent ones for our discussion. They talk about open source doesn't mean just access to the source code, right? You have to be able to redistribute the source code, sell it, use it in other code. Mm. You have to be able to include the source code and allow distribution in compiled form. And almost most importantly, you must allow modifications. And really, this is about the idea of forking a project, right? Like Ben's project, Lightstream, is 100% open source. It meets all 10 points. And if you want to make a code contribution and Ben doesn't want it, you're more than welcome to fork the project and make it your own. Which, you know, I mean, there's upsides and downsides to that. Like, do you want your project to be forked? Do you want a split ecosystem, you know? And yeah, like you said, some people might criticize this decision, but really it's it's not often the maintainers. It's the people that want to make those contributions themselves, right? Like a lot of maintainers, if you talk about contributions, the idea it comes down to is a lot of people are just sort of there to solve their own problems. And a lot of times it's sort of a, a hit and run thing too for a lot of maintainers. You know, you come in, you make your contribution, you don't worry about what the downstream effect is, and then you're gone. But I mean, beyond, you know, Ben doing it, there's also historical precedent. Yeah, so like what you're saying is that Ben isn't the only one who's done this. When it comes to playing with the levers of different ways of being open and what you're open to, Absolutely. I mean, name a project really where you could just go and contribute anything and it's automatically accepted. It's it's that's right. not common, right? Lightstream actually builds on a project called SQL Lite or SQLite and it is the original project that had the open source not o- open contribution sort of clause. And it says that SQLite is open source meaning that you can make as many copies of it as you want and do whatever you want with those copies without limitation but it's not open contribution. If you look at the Lua programming language, right, it has been around, it's sort of grown up alongside open source, and it's open source. But I spoke to the main maintainer and creator of the language, one of the maybe three people that's ever contributed to the language in its lifetime, and he just doesn't accept code contributions because part of the goal of Lua is to prioritize speed and portability and simplicity. And he makes a point that, like, nobody ever brags about being the person to remove a feature, right? Like, you want to be the person to add something. Still, Ben noted that he was worried about doing this with the Lightstream project. He was worried about pushback, but really, in the end, he found that people were okay with it. I definitely had some worries about that. And I thought that was going to get a lot more pushback. And a lot of people were very appreciative that, you know, someone wasn't accepting contributions so openly. I think that a lot of people had burnout and they could experience that same kind of uh, issue and they appreciate ha- you know, having that out there. I think having verbiage in the readme just to really say like, hey, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. Like, <laughs> I think you, you're great and all, but like, I just, I don't want to maintain that burden. I think it does um, jive with how other people view open source. That's one of the things I think people have to sort of understand, you know, when they're coming in that it's up to the maintainer of the project to actually dictate the terms by which they're giving this gift of the code and how they want to run the community. And I think it's all about setting the expectations early. Yeah, that's a point we actually come to in the article. Uh, Julia had a proposed sort of framework for uh, giving maintainers a way to easily communicate the status of their project. 
she had sort of nine different states that a project could be assigned under. And, you know, they might more easily communicate that this project is in this mode where you're not accepting contributions or it's it's archived or it's it's experimental or various things. I think I've seen that also when it comes to like some of the the newest features that came out from GitHub, right? Like there's issue forms, there's interaction limits, right? I know that before as a contributor and then becoming a maintainer, my mind was completely blown by how much responsibility these maintainers take when it comes to the code. And I think that it's really valuable to hear directly from the maintainers themselves, how it's not about just not wanting contributions, but really understanding all of the downstream effects of that and being able to rechart like what the pieces are that are open. It's just so easy to see it from a contributor's perspective. Why won't you let me help you, right? Um, and it's it, it's there's a lot more to that story, right? And there are now a lot of different ways to express that. So we've alluded to this kind of shift in the definition of open source. You know, are we changing the parameters, do you think, of open source? Or have they always been changing? I think people are always pushing the boundaries of open source, right? People are always trying to introduce new licenses to change what open source is. But I think really, in some ways, it comes back to that sort of social definition versus the technical definition. I mean, like, nothing about what Ben has done, like we said, was not open source. It's just... That's not how people might understand it. I mean, for example, there's research projects, right? They're open source, but they're there for verification purposes. Like you want to be able to verify that the code produces a certain output. And so by definition, you can't actually change that code. Otherwise, you're changing the equation that you're trying to prove. Mm. There's various other types of open source that are similar to what Ben has done, just with different reasoning. But they all fit under those same 10 points. Yeah, I also think that like, you know, coming back to like what Martin said initially, sometimes you just put your code out there and you don't realize all of the responsibilities that you incur, right? So is there some kind of middle ground when it comes to being fully open in different ways? Absolutely. We did talk to uh, Bartek Plotka, who spoke at one of our open source maintainer summits. He came to the point that there is a middle ground. You know, he started, like many people do, very naive in some ways and very just open to accepting everything. And then he realized the, the effects of that. And then he went the opposite way and he went completely closed and he realized the effects of that. You know, like you you might limit new maintainers. You might stifle your community from growing, all sorts of things. Mm. And he came to the idea that you need to sort of be in this middle ground where you enable people to help somehow, but not necessarily by making direct code contributions to your core code. He offered ideas such as using feature flags to hide experimental features behind so that you could add certain things that people suggest, but not necessarily have it affect everybody that uses that code. Or you could have a well-structured API so people can build integrations and build add-ons. And, right. and, and so there's definitely other ways of... Limiting contributions, but not being closed. And at the same time, obviously not being 100% open and dealing with the burden of that. I really like that summary. I like how you really can think about the different levers of enabling a community and um, how you might want to do that. And it's all about making that a conscious decision, right? So before we wrap up, Mike, can you give us a preview of what's ahead for you? Sure, happy to. This month, we have a guide from Anton Magorchenko. He's a developer with Cerebral Palsy who, rather than spending his time typing one character at a time, uses ChatGPT and GitHub Copilot to help him communicate and code. He highlights what he's learned and offers tips and tricks for how you can best incorporate AI into your own software development workflows. 
And we have another guide to check out from Josh Goldberg that dives into the world of static analysis tools within the JavaScript and TypeScript ecosystems. Learn all about formatters, linters, and type checkers, and discover how tools like Prettier and ESLint enhance code quality, ensure consistency, and prevent errors, all while saving valuable development time. As always, you can find all this and more at github.com forward slash readme. Awesome. Mike, thanks so much as always for coming. Oh, hang on. Actually, one more thing I want to throw in there, thinking about it. Um, all right. I'm going to be on an episode of the Sustain podcast soon as part of our celebration of Maintainer Month. It's um, it's a show about health and sustainability of the open source ecosystem. And, you know, it's obviously something we're all passionate about here. So this month, they're actually highlighting the work of eight maintainers, including woohoo, me. That would be exciting. So I'm going to be talking with host Richard Litauer about longevity in open source, some of my work with open source communities and kind of some of the things I've seen along the way. Um, if you want to check it out, go over to maintainamonth.github.com or you can find Sustain in your favorite podcast app. Okay, now you can go, Mike. Thanks. Great chatting with you. So Neha, how do you feel about being tracked online? I mean, I feel like, and thinking about it, I hate it, but also I feel like that ship has sailed for me. I do a lot of like public talks and I'm on this podcast and I'm a little bit more public when it comes to open source as well. And so I don't like it, but it's also like something I can't help. What about you? Yeah, it's similar, you know, like sort of, it feels like I don't like it, but then also I'm a product manager. I'm trying to manage like building of things and make them better. And so like I need the data to let me know if I'm making a system better or worse. Otherwise I'm just firing in the blind, you know what I mean? And so firing in the dark. So it's, I, I understand the need for data and ways of collecting it unobtrusively, but also like I don't like the massive tracking that means that when you know people know what I've bought from the grocery store, like by the way I sit in my chair or something like that. Yeah, I think it's like an interesting question, especially when it comes to open source, right? Because when it comes to these founding principles about open source and how things should be, we really embrace the concept of openness and freedom. And that is why we're all working together, why we're really excited about the future of software. And yet it has that kind of like weird piece about it that we have to reconcile with, which is that the minute you are open and you are working out in the open, that you are also being tracked. And that's just the issue we're going to talk about today with Arvi Press. Arvi is a founder and CEO of Scarf, a data analytics company. So Arvi, hey, good to have you here. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So Scarf is a company that provides user and customer intelligence for open source projects, helping maintainers and businesses to understand how their projects are being used. So there are particular use cases for commercialization here, I guess. But of course, you're also working on privacy concerns. So Arvi, um, let's start with, why do you think that analytics and tracking, like, why is that important to the open source community? I mean, the the main thing here is that open source is used everywhere and so much stuff relies on it. And I think if we're building a product and we want to make it better, how are we going to know how to make it better if we don't have information about how it's being used? And while I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that open source software are necessarily products because it is software at the end of the day, it's a very similar idea, I think. And you know, if your if your code is being used in a bank or a hospital or somewhere that's very critical that it is doing the right thing, 
it's very obvious that the people who are building it should have some kind of visibility into it. But of course, with all the historical, you know, cultural underpinnings of open source, it's just not trivial how we can do that and how we can kind of all, you know, both do that safely in a way that everyone is, is comfortable with. You know, there is this inherent pushback that you're kind of describing from people around that analytics and tracking. Why do you think there is such negativity around tracking for most people in the community? I mean, no one wants to be tracked, right? Like, it, well, yeah, yeah, I think it's like a, it, it's it's the very, it, it's it's the same thing here in that way. But yeah, I agree. It's like, it's a lot more extreme here. The tolerance for it is so much less. And yeah, I also find that very interesting. It's kind of paradoxical that we preach openness, except when it's how you use the software. Then it's just like, oh, God, don't, don't, don't look at me. Yeah, <laughs> don't look yeah, at me at all. Don't, yeah. don't, not, not even a little bit. And, you know, I think that's kind of, you know, the history of open source. You know, this code is ownerless. It's permissionless. Anyone can use it. And uh, analytics, the, the model of that is, is very much has an owner. That data is going somewhere. That data is owned by somebody. That data can be mishandled, you know, exploited, etc. So I think the fact that we came from a place where that was kind of incompatible with a lot of the ideals that we started with just made it so that we kind of continued to not move that part of the kind of cultural dynamic, even though the usage of open source really, really exploded and is now everywhere. And those two things, I think, are in more and more conflict over time. To me, the question is not, should we or should we not track this stuff? Because it's already happening, right? Like, you know, NPM has lots of data on how people download JavaScript packages, and they collect a lot of information about that, and they always have. It's how should that data be handled and who should have access to it? And my argument here is that if anyone is going to have access to it, maintainers must be one of those groups of people. Yeah. I've been in a position where I've had to like do this in a few different open source projects. And I've kind of been through different rounds of trying to figure out how to do it in a in a fair way, in an ethical way. You know, some of the sort of options we came up with are like, well, how do we make sure that the community sort of has summaries of this data, not enough data yeah. so that you can de-anonymize it and like, individually track people, but how do we share this in a way with the community so that it's we're clearly saying, hey, this is not our data, this is the community's data, but also how do we provide like opt-outs and all that sort of stuff right, again so right, that people can easily like exclude you know exclude themselves from that tracking and stuff are there specifics about how we might do this that you think are kind of best practices in ethical sort of fair ways yeah absolutely the standards around just like the internet standards already have some opinions into how this can be done. And so, mm-hmm. you know, things like do not track headers, which I guess we're now migrating more towards global privacy control, you know, there, there's web standards for say, hey, I want to make a request to this server, but please do not track me. That's built into Scarf natively by default because we always want to give people ample ways to, to opt out. And the standards that we've all kind of agreed on already to some, you know, to some form or another are a great place to start. You know, you know, of course, things like um, you know takedown requests as as GDPR specifies them are also something that you know can, can be an improvement here as well. Um, and so, 
pretty much every possible thing that we can do to protect privacy, we we have to do that by default because otherwise no one would ever give Scarf a second thought. That's, mm-hmm. that's like the bare minimum you have to do. And so we go even further of making sure that anything that can resemble PII, personally identifiable information, is just is, is completely wiped from our system after we after we process it. So, you know, we might look up, oh, you know, this download came from this company, you know, in this country, but then we're not going to keep the PII on hand. And so I think that over time, more and more platforms, it's our hope, can can follow suit, offer similar kinds of privacy controls so that people can get better understanding of how their work is being used while not sacrificing end user privacy, which we all care about and agree is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like when we think about privacy and like data and tracking, we think about like the specific user and all this like really detailed information. But there's also like common metrics, right? Like you can go to a repo and you can see the number of stars, right? Like you can see a lot of like packages out there. You can see the number of downloads. There's common metrics that are available to everyone that involves, you know, sharing a little bit of data. So I was curious about like your thoughts around like some of the the more common metrics, right? Like, for example, what are some common challenges that you see when it comes to utilizing common metrics like stars to interpret success? I mean, the thing with stars is that they're just kind of a, they're a distant proxy for what you actually care about, right? Like whether someone saw my project on Hacker News, thought it was cool and gave it a star is nice to know for sure. Love that. (laughs) But if I'm trying to assess what impact is my work having? Should I keep doing it? You know, or or further, like, do I start a business around this? Do I quit my job over for this? Or, you know, all of these kinds of questions that one might find themselves asking, stars are a little bit, I think, a bit distant from that. And so getting more towards usage, is this deployed in production somewhere? Are people relying on this? Do they use it daily? Do they use it sometimes? There's so much there that we can be exposing to maintainers in a better fashion. Some things of the common metrics that I think are really important here. Um, one is very easy. How many users do you have? Did that grow in the last month? And I am just shocked, just really shocked by the size of companies, the size of organizations that cannot answer that question, which is really wild. I think that if we want to see open source thrive in the long run, we need to understand the value and the impact that it has on the world. And part of doing that is being able to measure some some aspects of how it's the, 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 the usage of that software. So I'm going to ask you kind of two questions in one here, really, then. I'm interested in, you know, for somebody who's starting out as an open source maintainer, what metrics should they be looking at, you know, is, is the most meaningful for them? And then as kind of like a follow-up, if you could wave your magic wand, because I'm with you, I hate stars. Like I hate stars as a metric and I get very disappointed with like my own community on GitHub about how obsessed some projects get yeah. with stars because I'm like, yeah. no, stars are a terrible metric. I run queries all the time that like benchmark stars against other things such as audience size and things like that and see there's very little correlation between the two. So anyway, so we're not rant about stars. But like if you could wave a magic wand... What data would you love GitHub to be able to provide to open source maintainers to help them make a more meaningful decision? Oh, I wish we had an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, really what we want to get at is, is trying to assess production usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is really one of those big ones of like, 
okay, someone's using my project, but like, are they really, really relying on it? Or are they just kind of playing around with it? Or what stage are they in this? That's hard because that doesn't mean the same thing for all different kinds of projects. A library versus a database versus a CLI tool. It's all, it's not apples to apples in all of yeah. those cases, I think. Things like, you know, unique sources of, of various kinds of traffic would be really great. I know that there has been updates to things like understanding documentation access, but going even deeper would be really good. Um, so like one of the things that we've been doing is helping projects understand things like conversion rates from documentation to actually downloading to actually, you know, proliferation and usage mm -hmm. and these kinds of things. So having better analytics around docs, I think will be very, very important for GitHub in the long run. And, you know, we're already seeing some of these things in motion. So that was, that's been really cool to see. Mm -hmm. Things like version adoption over time, I think are, are very, very important. Are people picking up every new version that you put out there? That's a really good sign. If people aren't, well, you know, but but it's it's not even that simple either. You know, you don't want people just pulling down the latest version of your Docker container all the time. They're probably not using it in production if that's the case. Mm -hmm. But really what I'm getting at here is we want to get closer and closer to understanding the actual impact your software is having, not just these kinds of uh, off-to-the-side proxies of that information. And I think like, you know, coming back to like what we were talking about at the beginning, right? It feels really icky to talk about data because especially totally. when you're like, oh, you want my data? Like, I don't know what you're going to use that for. And I feel like what's really illuminating in this conversation is that once I hear what you want to use it for, right? You're trying to make the best decisions possible as a maintainer and potentially for your own career or like how much time you want to spend on it. Then I'm like, oh, wait, if you want my data for that, like, that's fine. Like, that sounds great. Actually, right. I could benefit from that. Yeah. I think that this kind of data sharing, and, and we can really talk about like data sharing, um, is a way that more people can contribute to open source. You know, if I'm not going to contribute code, like maybe I just don't have time, or there's too many projects I use to contribute code to all of them. I don't have enough money to donate to all of them or yeah. pay them for all the stuff they do, but I can just tell them, hey, I use this, I make use yeah. of it. And for those listening, if you have a project that you really like, you should tell the maintainers that. they It will make their day. It will make their week. I think people often open issues to complain about stuff. I was in a position where just every time I get a GitHub notification, you just get like a tinge of anxiety of what yeah, has broken yeah. this what time. Yeah, what is it? What is it? What and did I do? <laughs> yeah, and that's terrible. Like that, that is such a, that's such a tough position to be in. But with better kinds of data sharing initiatives, we can actually better understand the impact of our work and, and prioritize it more effectively. If someone says, hey, this doesn't work well on Windows and X, Y, and Z, and I say, well, how many of my users are actually on Windows? I don't know. And right now, even if you're the most sophisticated, you know, a very sophisticated project, you probably have to put out a survey to answer that question. And that's crazy. Mm. <laughs> and so I think these kinds of things about like, how is the stuff actually being used in practice? How can I prioritize my time most effectively is how we get less burnt out maintainers, more effectively maintain projects, better software, and just a healthier ecosystem. Well, I think that's a great way to end. So thank you so much for um, coming. It was really cool to hear all of the different parts of the spectrum when it comes to thinking about this. So I feel like I learned a lot. Thanks so much for having me. Now for Ask RMP, the place in the show where we get to grab a listener question from you and get an expert to give us their advice. 
This month, we're looking at the assumptions around how we're supposed to act as serious developers. Don't know what one of those is. Moishez from Fortaleza, Brazil asks, I want to make sure I'm building chemistry and community on my team. What are some good ways to make sure that happens? Well, for answers, we went to none other than Jessica Janik. She's a senior software engineer at Google working on the Angular framework team, and she's also a self-proclaimed pun fanatic. For me, humor has been an essential tool. I guess when people laugh together, they just feel closer together. So for me, it is most definitely using humor of some sort to disarm and I guess ingratiate myself to other team members and make it very clear to them that I'm not a really difficult person to work with. I like to have fun with my work and uh, I like to laugh. I make a lot of very silly, lighthearted wordplay jokes and it works really well for me. I'm constantly processing everybody's language and searching for puns. (laughs) So as you might imagine on the Angular Framework team, we make a lot of web-based jokes. There's a lot of reactions and people have views on things. And anybody who is in the web framework space will be like, aha, I know what Jessica's doing. But it didn't start off that way. And... I came in and started making these jokes and suddenly people were aware that they could make these jokes. So we all get to laugh together and contribute to the yes and of humor. So one person feeds off of the other person and then we're all smiling and laughing. So I think that's part of it. It is a group contribution that people can make um, and feel closer to their peers. Now, not everyone has to be a pun machine either. Jessica says it's about making it clear you can be light-hearted and have fun at what you do. I actually think it has a positive impact on our user base and our community when we reach out and do videos. We get a pretty positive reaction from people when we introduce humor into a lot of our content, be it uh, during conferences on stage or through our YouTube content. And um, I think people think of it as maybe more accessible. By adding humor to our content, we actually make people want to stay and watch it more. It makes it easier for people to learn. So I think it has a huge impact overall uh, in the positive direction. Jessica says that beyond building a level of comfort with your team by introducing humor, it can actually have real impacts on your work or your products or your users. Being authentic is really important, and uh, I think it's really a useful tool to just be yourself. I think it builds trust, and I think it overall is just the right approach for team cohesiveness. So I always encourage being as authentic as you can whenever you're at work. So that is my advice. And this is why whenever I like do a talk, I usually sign off with Live Long and Prosper, because it's very authentic to my nerd self. (laughs) That's it for this episode of the Read Me podcast. Thanks so much to this month's guests, Jessica Janik, Ben Johnson, Mike Melanson, and Avi Press. And thanks to you for listening. 
Join us each month for a new episode. And if you're a fan of a show, you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate and review, or drop us a note at theremeproject at github.com. You can also learn more about all that we do at GitHub by heading to github.com slash readme. May is Maintainer Month here at GitHub. In celebration, we have a special episode dropping May 23rd featuring Kubernetes superstar and all-around great human, Kelsey Hightower. Here's a sneak peek. It's the whole person that I try to bring to this development process. You know, for me, my job before tech was like fast food. And so for me, getting into technology was like a means of survival. So self-taught was the preferred option, mainly because it was the most accessible option. You could go to a bookstore in 1999 and buy a book on any topic. And it felt like you were getting that college degree that other people had access to. GitHub's The Read Me podcast is hosted by Neha Batra and Martin Woodward. Stories for this episode were reported by senior editors Clint Finley and Mike Melanson. Audio production and editing by Reasonable Volume. Original theme music composed by Xander Singh. Executive producers for The Readme Project and The Readme Podcast are Rob Mapp, Melissa Beiser, and Virginia Bryant. Our staff includes Stephanie Moorhead, Kevin Sundstrom, and Grace Beatty. Please visit github.com slash readme for more community-driven articles and stories. Join us again next month and let's build from here. How many programmers does it take to change a light bulb? How many? None. It's a hardware problem. Ha, 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 ha.